0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning. Thank you. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online, whether you're in a connect group this morning, whether you're watching somewhere else in the world, whether you're part of our North site, we're so glad that you are here today. If you got your Bible this morning, again, let's turn back into 1 Peter. If it's your first time here, we are so glad that you're joining us uh, this morning. You can turn there virtually or, or physically. Our journey today begins in the month of July, July 4th, 1952. There was a young woman at the age of 34 named Florence Chadwick, and she decided to do something that had never been done by a woman before off the Straits of California. She was on an island, some of you know it, called Catalina Island, and she decided that she was going to swim the 21 miles from there all the way to the California coast and beat the record or be the first woman to do it. It says in history that the water that day was numbing cold. The fog was so thick that she could not even see the boats in her own party. As the hours ticked by, she swam on. Actually, she swam for 15 hours straight. Numb by the cold, at the very end of 15 hours, she asked to be taken out of the water. But within a few minutes, the fog actually began to dissipate, and the small party realized her and the boats around her, they were only a half a mile away from the coastline. When she was interviewed, she said that she regretted deeply giving up, and then she said this very simple line, if I only would have been able to see the shoreline, I would have made it. Two years later, she decided to do it again. And interestingly, the day she got in the water, the conditions were exactly the same. The fog was thick. She could not even see the boats, etc., etc. And yet she swam. And in that day, she actually beat that goal in her mind. And they asked her, well, what was the difference between two years ago and in this moment? And she simply said, I always kept the image of the shoreline in my mind because I knew it was there. What is so significant about that little historical antidote is this. Peter has been writing to a group of churches 2,000 years ago that are at the cusp of persecution. They for the first time are truly suffering for their faith and he as an old man is writing a letter to a group of churches to teach them not only how to prepare to survive persecution but to endure persecution and to have joy through persecution. And what he continually has been saying is we as Christians have living hope and the living hope is connected directly not only to what God has done in our life at this moment but what he has promised to do in the future that is Jesus' return where he'll make all things right and all Christians will be vindicated and what he has been saying to people that are suffering and wondering if suffering is worth it is this keep your eyes on the shoreline though the fog is all around you because if you know the end you can endure the middle and you can do it with joy but if you take your eyes off the and prize, the fog will consume you, you will give up, and you will drown. So he comes and he says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1, this is where we begin, and he's walking through again, preparing people to suffer, a very un-North American conversation. Therefore, he said, since all that I've told you already in this letter... Since Jesus suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because the person who suffers in their body is done with sin. For the fourth time in the book of 1 Peter, Peter looks back at the suffering of Jesus and says that the suffering of Christ is the lenses. It is how we translate and live life. And Peter says that Jesus Christ, though fully human and fully God, he suffered and he finished with sin. In other words, he broke the power of sin. He conquered sin. He took the darkest acts that would ever and had happened in human history. He placed them on his body. And when he was dying, he in victory declared, this is done, it is finished. So he says, this is now done. And he says that he was suffering, he died, he rose again, and then we come back to this theme. Jesus was vindicated from the Father. And now he turns around to everyday normal Christians like us, and he says, So now as a Christian, you arm yourself, you put on the same idea as Jesus. You choose to suffer in your body, and you will be done with sin also. It is better to do right and suffer. It is never right to suffer in sin. In other words, what Peter begins to do is this. He said last week, if he was here today, he'd be saying last week, I began to talk to you about how you deal with suffering from outside sources. Remember, we were getting into it. Wonder if I'm submissive, and I'm kind, and I'm Canadian, and I'm nice, and I'm intellectual, and I'm socially involved, and it still doesn't matter. People still attack me for my faith. People still attack me for having a biblical worldview. What do I do in that situation? And Peter said, we never return insult for insult. But now Peter says, oh, there's another level of suffering that comes even closer to home. Because it's not just about being marginalized or insulted or being attacked from family or friends or neighbors. Peter says, hold on. Suffering for Jesus isn't just always about outside pressure. Suffering for Jesus also happens when we make the decision to say no to what is natural to us. Sin and the effects of sin. See, we enter into the sufferings of Christ when other people attack us for being Christians or having a worldview, but we suffer even more when we actually decide to say no to what we naturally want. Here's how Paul wrote it in Romans 6.6. 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You don't have to sin anymore, he says as a Christian. You don't need to be a slave to sin anymore. We now have the power of the Holy Spirit, and over time, we through his power, not our own ability, can become more like Jesus. We can say no to what we desire. Why? Because the love of God has brought us and is bringing us to a place that we love Jesus more than ourselves, more than what is natural to us, more than what our rights are, more than what we desire. We choose to suffer because we have experienced the love of God, and so we even crucify what we want for the sake of him. He says, as a result, the person does not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter says, okay, Christian, what are you going to live for? What are you going to submit to the rest of your life? What will master your private life, and your public life, and your money, and your relationships, and your sexual identity, and your job, and your family, and your spiritual life, and your theology, and your worldview, and your politics, and the list goes on and on. This again, by the way, is the heart of last year's theme for this whole church, Kingdom Come. This is truly a call for the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God, welcomed and accepted in any place or space. And Peter is saying, do you want the kingdom more than yourself? In other words, he says, we choose to suffer and say no to what we want or what seems natural because we love God, we worship God, we have met Jesus because we know he is good, and oh, the suffering is worth it because reward actually is going to come in the not yet. He says the simple question, he poses it, for have you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do? living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. He says, haven't you sinned enough? Aren't you done with that? Now, this is a summary of Greco-Roman culture in this time. It's not saying that all non-Christians live like this, but this marked the society. Now, it's very interesting if you've grown up in church. If you're a second or third generation Christian, one of the things that sits in the back of many of our minds is, no, I didn't get my time with all that. And it's not fair. I should have been able to have a little run-in with sin, had my rebellion point, come back to Jesus and say, oh, I got to do the two-for-one special. And Peter comes and says, you haven't sinned enough? You really don't think you've sinned enough? Do you think that your father is a loving father? Do you believe that he says no to these things because he loves you? Or do you think he's trying to deny you something? And then he says to all Christians, don't you remember who you were before Jesus? You're done with that lifestyle, right? Let me unpack what this means. Debauchery is an old English word we don't use very much anymore. It means living without moral restraint, sexual immorality, physical violence, fast and free living. Actually, the Shakespearean way of talking about this is this. It is riotous living, it is wenching, it is whoring, it is wildness. He says, are you done with that? He says, oh, debauchery is one, but there's more. It's lust. It's forbidden passions, the Bible says. This is directly connected to the word sexual immorality in the scriptures. Any sexual act outside of marriage formed by God in the book of Genesis. For Moses, for Jesus, for Paul, actually all the biblical writers, the sexual starting point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. That is the picture of God's want and design and gift. God is the inventor of sex. He loves giving the act of sex to human beings. But when we cross the lines he has given, it becomes sin. Are you done with that? He says, debauchery and lust, and then he says, "Orgies, drink, uh, binge drinking, drinking parties, gluttony, etc." And then he said, "Oh, and one more thing: drunkenness. Drunkenness. It has never been God's will ever. It's never OK for a follower of Jesus to get drunk, or let me add this, or even be buzzed. High, stone, tipsy, inebriated, lace, plit, lit, plastered, potted, wasted, tanked. We are called out of this. A follower of Jesus may never be under the table or under the influence of any substance at all. Not for a moment, not for a season, not for a lifetime. Is it wrong to drink? Absolutely not. You live in Canada. Enjoy. But being buzzed forward is foolish, It is dangerous to you and your family and your job and your wealth and your life. It grieves the Holy Spirit and it is sin. Now, no matter the reason why we want to do this, let's be honest about it. Many people involve this in their life, whether it is alcohol or other addiction, because life is monotonous. Or we want to escape, or we want to feel, or we want to have courage. And whether the source of the addiction is biology or disease, or chosen, and all three are on the table, God says, no more. This isn't you anymore. The days are evil, and this is one of those expressions of those days. The old thing has passed away. That is your old life you have now walked with and in Christ. Debauchery and lusts and orgy and drunkenness can never mark the inner life or the outer expression of a Christian. Oh, and then he throws in something even more relevant. And he says, no one may be involved any longer in detestable idolatry. Now, in Peter's culture, idolatry was everywhere. Every single family had their own God or group of gods. They would have a miniature temple set up in many of their homes. And like we thank Jesus for our meals, they do the same for Mars or Apollo or Zeus. He says, you can't do that anymore. There's only one God. And by the way, every single job was connected to the gods. So if you were part of the Plumber's Guild or the Artisan Guild, right? If you were part of the Starbucks movement 2,000 years ago, when you'd gather for staff time, you would all actually worship an idol as part of your staff training. Can you imagine? Normally, he says, you can't do it. Even if it costs you your job, you can't do that anymore. He says, not only that, most people were involved in emperor worship or it was beginning to take off. You can't do that anymore. And most people just worship the many gods. He says, that is detestable idolatry. You now have met the true living God through the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed by the Holy Spirit. You understand that the Jews understood the greatest truth. O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. No more. Now, idolatry in our culture has not changed. There are three different ways idolatry spills out in human society. There's formal idolatry, there's secular idolatry, and then there's heresy. Let me walk this through with all of us today. Formal idolatry happens through formal religion or folk religion. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a person, a good, sincere person, worships any other God other than the God found through Jesus, it is idolatry. When a Hindu gives offerings to Ganesh or Shiva or Vishnu or Brahma, when, when, when a Buddhist teaches karma or reincarnation or points to, nir, to Nirvana through self-learning and self it is idolatry. When a Jehovah Witness at this moment is meeting in a so-called church on a Sunday morning and saying, "We worship Jesus, but teach He was created," and formerly was the Archangel Michael idolatry. When Mormons meet at this moment in other churches and say they're worshiping the true living God and use the same words we do and yet say Jesus is one of millions of gods, idolatry. When a wicked witch wants to bless people by invoking the powers of nature and not doing anything wicked, just it is idolatry. Many people also break God's heart and mind because they do it through spirituality and folk religion. Anytime you choose to connect to any spiritual force, whether you intentionally want to or not, other than the God found in Scripture, or you elevate yourself to God's position, it's idolatry. See, beneath all technology and science and medicine, you will find that the average person in your life and in your family is involved in one or more practices like tarot cards and psychic readings and crystals in the New Age or witchcraft or horoscopes. Some outright Satanism, Ouija boards, reincarnation readings, ghosts, haunted houses, uh, levitation, palm readings, seances, tea leaves, water, uh, water witching, Reiki, using energy not of God himself, numerology, idols you bought at Pier 1 to decorate your home or garden, the magic 8-ball, astrology, participation in secret societies where you are part of societies where you have said vows to things that are not connected to the Lord Jesus at all. All of that, according to Scripture, is idolatry. Any worship or any gaining of spiritual power from any other source except the Father found through Jesus' the Son, revealed through the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the Word of God, is idolatry. And Peter comes along and says, if you are a Christian, that no longer is you. Or as Paul says, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He says, now, that's idolatry, but actually, let's get even closer to home. Because idolatry doesn't just take place in religious contexts. Idolatry also takes place in secular forms, through sex, money, and power. Or as another person basically said, sex, shekels, in the stomach is the unholy trinity that worships the God of self through pleasure, possessions, and position. See, sex, money, and power are all gifts of God. They're all wonderful gifts of God, but at any time we cross the line with them or elevate them, suddenly they're worship of something else. John, I know God says I should not have sex outside of marriage, but I love her and we're living together and we'll get married one day. Don't be such a downer. No, your sexual life, your girlfriend or boyfriend have become an idol. Your relationship is an idol because you've declared God does not know what he's talking about and you do. John, I know God told me to surrender that or not do this or give more money or time. Your fear or excuses have become a God. John, come on. I don't have time for Christian community or spiritual disciplines. If you looked at my middle class schedule, I've got dance and sports. and No, no. Then your lifestyle has become an idol. See, God is what you love and what you seek and what you worship and what you serve and what you support and what controls you. Or as another road in North American culture... At this moment, I fear that the number one God in which we trust is the God of inner, hidden abilities. In a word, the God of contemporary culture is the God of self. Years ago, the great feminist Gloria Steinem boldly stated this. She says, I hope by the year 2000, we will raise our children to believe in human potential and not God anymore. See, whether you trust in education or or position or technology, whatever you place your full 100% trust in besides God becomes a false god even if it's good. So you cannot trust God in money. You cannot trust God in science. Only God alone. Oh, why? Because God does not share his glory with another. Here's the question Peter's addressing during a very difficult time. As Christians are suffering, as it's getting harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus, as it's starting to cost people more and more, here's what the temptation is. Can I just escape for a few minutes? Can I just have another fling with sin because, you know what, I'd just like a little break. Can I have a small relapse? Can I imitate what I used to be just for a moment, you know, what, you know, what stays in Vegas? You know this phrase, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? No we know that's a lie, even though it's mainstream. Now, we know it's a lie, and Peter comes along and says, no, 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 Don't underst- just don't misunderstand this. There is no joy in what you've been saved from. This is not God wagging his finger at the church. He is saying, oh, my son died, so you don't have to go back to that filth anymore. I've set you free, and if you walk in this freedom, not only will you, listen, keep your eye on the shoreline.'" There is reward coming that is better than anything you could participate in these things at all in the now. And not only that, don't forget that your countercultural life is the living example for other people to realize the good news of Jesus. I love what Eugene Peterson said in the message. He says, you've already put in your time with that God-ignorant way of life. Parting night after night, a drunken life. Now it's time to be done with that for good. Of course your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with a gang anymore. But you don't, have a give, you don't have to give an account to them. Oh, they're the ones who are going to be called on the carpet before God himself. Now this is really critical. Really significant. Because basically what's basically happening here is he is saying that they are going to have to give an account to the king of kings and the lord of lords. That they are going to have to meet him And meet him directly. And this is what is going to take place in the end. And he says, don't don't misunderstand this. We are all absolutely called to follow after the living God. And we have to give an account also. And so he says very simply, very simply to our community and to these people, look, don't give an account to your friends. There is no account to your friends. The account that's being given here." is to God himself, and they themselves are going to have to give a full account. Now, Peter keeps going, and he's already said these things to us over and over again. He's saying, look, as we move forward, never forget this. Never forget what's taking place. Well, in verse 7, Peter keeps going, and he says these words, The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. He says, so as we're moving forward and we're walking through this passage, he says, just don't forget what's coming. So as he says these things, he begins to go, okay, church, do you have the future in mind at this moment? Do you understand what is about to come? They are going to be called under the carpet. And he says, the end of all things near. Now, is this saying that we shouldn't enjoy our life or protect the environment? No, but when we suffer, we should know that the end is near. God is working through and owns all of history. The great drama of redemption, the history within history is coming to end. From creation to the fall to the calling of Abraham to the exodus of Egypt, all of this is coming to the end. And Jesus is going to make all things right. Peter is saying, as Christians, we live our life with the end as the most important thing. The end holds our living hope. It is why we can suffer and know there's vindication. It is also the motivation to keep obeying God. See, P has already taught us this in 1 Peter 1.7. He says, since you call God a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here with reverent fear. Now, this is critical. He's saying, look, oh yes, God is your father. Oh yes, God is your Abba, your dad. He is going to love you and continue to love you. You have an amazing relationship with him. But this will not bring a free pass when we face him at the end of time. Father is an intimate term, a loving term, but it means fear and respect. Belonging is amazing. God's work in our life is amazing. But as God is going to call all people to the carpet, he will also call us on the carpet. It's, and it's critical. He says, look, every Christian also will be judged according to the scope and character of their life. This isn't about heaven and hell. It's about worship and stewardship. And let the scripture speak clearly, he says. At the end of time, all people will give an count, including Christians, it's not about heaven or hell, but he will judge our stewardship. Was our life about faith and giving, or was it about self-interest and fear? It's 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident I'd say, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each of us may receive what is due in the things done in the body, whether good or bad. He says, look, Keep your eyes on the end. You don't belong to this world. You are sojourners, temporary foreign residents of another land. And, and you don't have to be involved in that. And it's not dread, by the way, for Christians or anxiety, not hellbound, It's not full of guilt and shame. It's reverent awe of God. We will be judged differently, but we will be judged. And he says, so don't live that life anymore. Remember the end is coming. And so in verse 7, Peter says, look. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. You're going to be clear-minded when you know the end is coming. You're going to be clear-minded when you say no to sin. You're going to be clear-minded when you suffer for Christ. And you're going to be clear-minded when you pray. This is not saying pray to get out. Just pray for God's will as the darkness grows. He says, so remember, you've been saved out of that, you don't have to be involved in that stuff anymore, you've been redeemed out of that, not only that, you know what's coming in the end, you also know you yourself will be judged. So he says, therefore, verse 7, be clear-minded and self-controlled that you can pray. And then he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. He said, so as you're abandoning the old life, as you're being inspired by the end, as you realize that you're going to give an account and they're going to give an account, then he says these words. This is what the church needs to look like even under persecution. He quotes Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. He says, look, a church that's in the middle of persecution has to maintain communal unity. God's love has covered our sins so our love can overlook and forgive other people's sins. Our unity and our purity and our relationships are key. Our community must reflect the God we have actually met. Or as another person says, where love abounds in the gathering of Christians, many small offenses and even large ones are overlooked, forgiven, and sometimes even forgotten. But where love is lacking, every other word is viewed with suspicion, every action liable to misunderstanding, and conflict abounds to Satan's perverse delight. See, we've said this all through this series. A community that's growing under pressure from the outside has a tendency to bicker turn on each other, and attack each other. He says, no, no, no. Understand, there's a judge coming, and he's going to give an account. All are going to give an account to him. We're going to give an account to him. We've experienced the love of God. And so, in the middle of persecution, don't turn on each other, but actually love each other more, not less. And then he says, and oh, by the way, it's deeper than that. Offer hospitality one to another without grumbling. This is a call for deep generosity. It's so countercultural. He's saying, "Well, things are getting worse. I would like you to give more." And this is how you give. He says he uses the example of hospitality, but giving is the exact same thing. He says, "Be a church that is bizarrely counterculturally generous with their time and talent and treasure." See, hospitality and giving are the same. They're about worship. So give yourself to God. When you see the plate pass, or someone comes to your home and you invite them in, don't grumble. Be deeply cheerful that you get to give to God and see his kingdom move forward and also honor other people. It's actually what Peter, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So Peter says in the midst of all of this, know the end, abandon the old lifestyle, understand that you're going to walk in a new freedom, begin to live under the auspice that the end is near, love each other, give generously beyond even what is normal. And then he says, oh, you also are called to serve during suffering. But he roots our suffering in a power that is not our own. He roots it In the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says in verse 10. Each one of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Now this is critical. We at C4 believe this so much, we harp on this all the time. This actually forms one of our core values. We believe that every Jesus follower is called to impact those around them through loving, joy-filled, gift-based service. Peter says that the only place to serve long-term is in your area of spiritual gifts. It is the power place, the gravity place, it it is the joy place that God gives us. We've done this since 2011. Remember, we walked through all the gifts and what they felt like and what they looked like and what they were. And we realized that natural gifts and acquired gifts are good, but they are not given from God himself in the same way. There are at least 21 spiritual gifts in the scriptures. We here at C4 break them down to love gifts and word gifts and power gifts. And all Christians have at least one gift and they need to be accompanied by growing character. But he says you must serve in your area of spiritual giftedness. Natural gifts and acquired gifts can be used, but they are not the guaranteed place of power. They are not the guaranteed place of power. Our programs and our activities are not the guaranteed place of power. They're needed, but Peter and Paul both say, if you want to see the world changed, if you want to see the world actually change as it gets darker, you serve in the area of your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 11, all these gifts are the work of the one and same spirit, and he distributes them to each person just as he determines. Spiritual gifts, gifts are the only ongoing guaranteed place of holy power and it is the only place to serve in any context in the dark times and in the best times we need God's power to change the world and since spiritual gifts are sovereignly assigned then you know what God's will is for your life So many people say, I don't know what God's will is. Well, find out your spiritual gifts and serve in them and you'll know God's will because they go beyond program, beyond style of church or where you go. They are how God has created you to show a dark world the love of Christ. See, no matter the approach or programs the church that we belong to, they've got to be filled with spiritually gifted people. And why is this so critical? Because spiritually gifted people are producing joy they produce longevity, they build unity, and oh, here's a critical thing. Gift-based ministry is one great major factor in preventing burnout. Again, I just want to say this. Go back and listen to that series and walk through it. But Peter says, look, we all need to understand that as the pressure mounts and our strategies don't work as well as they used to, We, again, get back to the basics of our faith, which are we need the spirit of God's power to love each other and to serve the world because other things don't work anymore. So we're getting back to basics and asking for the God of the universe to fill us with power that is not our own, to show the world that the end is coming and he is good. And then Peter ends simply by saying, as he's walking through the questions of judgment and freedom and walking out of history in spiritual gifts, he's, look, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He, he begins by saying, okay, understand that you're going to suffer, but he ends by saying, oh, let me focus you back. May everyone's eyes once again get to the end of the shoreline. He says, look, who is Jesus, as I outlined him in First Peter? He says, to Jesus who suffered for us, to Jesus who's been sympathetic, let me say, to you, to Jesus who has loved you, to Jesus who did not repay evil with evil, To Jesus who did not repay insult with insult. To Jesus who who treated us with gentleness and respect. To Jesus who obeyed God's will. To Jesus who died and rose again. To Jesus who went to the whole demonic realm. Remember we heard this? To show and demonstrate and enforce their defeat to Jesus who sits at the right hand of God, to Jesus who's above all angels, to Jesus who's above all demons, to Jesus who's actually above all humans and all leaders, to Jesus who proves that suffering leads to vindication, to Jesus our great Savior, to Jesus our great Judge, to Jesus be glory and honor forever and ever and ever. Amen. He says, if you keep your eyes on the end... You will abandon your old lifestyle, you will have joy in your lifestyle, you will not accommodate other things that are not of Christ, and you will begin to show the world hope. Now there's a thousand things in this little passage that are difficult. Uh, Be like Jesus. Have hope. Suffer well. Love the church. Pray. Be holy. Forgive. Be generous. Find and use your spiritual gifts. Don't give into darkness. Know that your accusers will face God. Know that you'll face God. They'll give an account. You'll give an account. Live your life in the light of the end. Oh, by the way, the end is hopeful. You'll be vindicated. uh, Fear God. And it goes on and on. Now, you could go a thousand places, and you can do this in your connect group. But the question being sort of worked through with us is this what does Jesus, who's here among us at this moment, want to actually say in this moment out of this part of First Peter? Because there's so much here that it's going to take not a week but weeks to unpack in our life. Well, let me just say this Does the end at all form the now for you? Does the end of all things near, the all the end is near? Do you even believe this as a Christian? Does this affect the way we think and live and what we're willing to do or, or not do? See, he says the end is all things near. and One of the verses I didn't quote says God is like literally the judge standing at the door. Now, this idea of imminence is so important because as a Christian, you, you sing and you believe, yes, I think Jesus is coming back. But if you do not live like the end is happening immediately or soon, you'll miss freedom You'll miss joy. You will not live a good godly life among non-Christians because you will start believing, because you're soaking in the culture, that this really is life and that might or might not happen. You intellectually believe that's going to happen, but you live life like this is it. But he says, no, the end of all things is near. So here's the question. Does anyone among us And this is, by the way, with no guilt, no shame, no dramatic moment. Just a simple question. If the end of all things is near, and we're going to give an account, and we're called to be different, does anyone need to repent of anything? Like, honestly, we've all been set free if you're a Christian, but does anyone have to say, you know what, debauchery, that's me. Or, Or, that's me. Or drunkenness, or orgies, or, oh my goodness, well, you are going through that list, John, of idolatry I've actually been involved in that stuff and I didn't even know. Or maybe your love has not covered a multitude of sins. Or, or, or maybe you're not praying, and it's just a simple question. Peter says, you've already been set for, you already are a chosen people, you already know the love of God, your future's secure, you're not hellbound. none of that applies to you. But the question being asked simply is this: Is there anything you need to say to the Lord i'm so sorry i 've started living in the fog, and I 'm not looking at the end. Is there anything you need to repent of? And if there is, let's just take a moment, whatever, and just go silent in the north. If you want to do this too, bow your head and just talk to Christ about this in a very simple way. And just say, Lord, actually, much of what Peter talks about or a little part of what Peter talks about is me. And I'm just, I, I repent. I, I'm sorry. I, I confess this. Forgive me for not living with the end in mind. And forgive me for actually being involved in sin. Lord, I just, I pray for new help, new accountability, new healing, but not only that, I pray that this would be a turning point for me. By the way, maybe some of you, within the sound of my voice, here or online, you are that person living that life that Peter says Christians have left. I just want to say to you this morning, um, there's no long-lasting joy in all of that. And it doesn't have to be that way. God is a God of mercy and of love, and he would love to meet you. All you need to do is turn to Christ and say to him, I embrace you, I accept you. I turn from that. I want eternal life. And if that's you, just say, Jesus, my life is that list of things, idolatry and debauchery and orgies and drunk. That's me. And if you'd be willing to meet me and make me clean, just make me clean. I say, yes, I turn from that. I embrace Christ Embrace Jesus in his work, and I want new life. I actually want to live with the end is near in a hopeful way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. But here's the question for the whole church today, and it's critical. Would you be willing to say yes to the end? Like, we all believe this as Christians, but like I asked, does it even form us? Does it have any effect on how we deal with our money or our time or our sexuality or our relationships or what we give to or not give to or how we even say no to ourselves? Do you believe that there is a better thing coming? Do you believe that there is actual blessing if you obey God in this life? Do you believe you'll give an account to your father who loves you? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the judge is standing at the door? It is imminent. Well, there's this great little prayer I found this week out of actually Moody Church from a guy named Erwin Lutzer. Some of you may know him. And he crafted a prayer for Christians to pray for themselves, their church, and their area, how to say yes to the end. So would you stand with me as we do this together, uh, as we end? And would you be able to pray this sincerely? Father, I pray that you would help me be motivated by the sure knowledge that Jesus will return again. Let me say that again. Father, I pray that you would help me be motivated by the sure knowledge that Jesus will return again. Cause me to live a pure life of holiness and anticipate your real coming. I pray that I would live this week as if I know for sure that you're coming by next weekend. Let me be a witness to your saving grace in the life of those who are not even ready for your return. And now, Father, we pray not only for all of C4, like thousands of people now. But we also pray for the whole region of Durham, that they might also be aware that life is really short. And they will either meet you in death or perhaps see you return. But I pray that for Christians, they might love Jesus so much that they would actually look forward to seeing him come. And Lord, if they don't know you as Savior... We pray right now again, as we've prayed so long, turn this region's heart in your direction. Give them a sense of your own personal need. Capture their hearts for your glory and honor. Help us to develop a passion for you that is greater than our passion for sin. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, help us to have great anticipation for your return. Help us to live holy lives. Let not one person in the sound of my voice feel attacked or condemned, but invited to salvation and repentance and healing. And may this church actually live out the Second Corinthians that we want to be away from the body and home in the Lord, but whether here or there, we desire to obey Jesus because we know we're going to face him. So, Lord, grow across c for imminence, the idea of living with the end in mind. Help the shoreline. To be incredibly clear. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit C4Church.com.